it seems like creatives always get a bad rap. From childlike tantrums and ridiculous green room requests, strange superstitions, and even self-mutilation, it's clear that artists have plenty of strange habits. But they've also made a pretty big impact on the world. Hi, I'm Kate Rooney. And I'm Jess Scuffy. And you're listening to Creatives Are the Worst, presented by Design Pickle, the leading flat rate graphic design and creative services platform. In this podcast, we'll be uncovering the fascinating myths and shocking stories behind the artists we love, or in some cases, love to hate, as we try to determine, are creatives the worst? Hello, and welcome to Creatives Are the Worst, presented by Design Pickle. My name is Kate, and I am joined by my effervescent co-host, Jess Guffey. We really do use like the nicest words to describe each other here. It's really alarming when you think of the other things we say. <laughs> hey, I believe it. I believe you are super effervescent, especially when you cough into the Thank mic. Thank you so it's much. <laughs> we, beautiful. We did just do uh, vocal exercises because we're real professionals <laughs> at that and have no idea what we're doing. <laughs> we didn't actually like look up how to do vocal exercises. We just decided to yell into the mic. <laughs> and make bird noises at one point, I think. Cock. <laughs> Needless to say, I don't think my vocal cords feel any better or worse. Maybe worse. We might have just fried them. Mine feels smooth as honey. Wow. Just trickling down a stream. Okay. For days. <laughs> well, Jess, before we start, I just wanted to talk about this really great show that I discovered. Oh, tell me. And I want to share it with the world. It's called Toast of London. Have you heard of this? I have not, and I'm kind of mad that you're just now waiting to tell me about this until, well, you know. Well, sorry, I'm not sorry, but it's just a quintessential British comedy. Ugh, it's totally it. off the wall and weird. It is super weird. You kind of start watching it, and you're like, what is happening? Just It's about this actor in London and just him struggling to find work and whatnot, but I don't want to give away too much. It's just, it reminds me of Monty Python Love and... It. It brings me so much joy, so I want to share it with the world. Where can people you. stream it, Kate? Toast of London. Watch on Netflix, which we are not sponsored by. Perfect. <laughs> Thank you. Well, Kate, I have a story for you today. And I have to say, I went into this just kind of like, oh, whatever. I'm excited to do this person, but I don't really know that much about them. I know enough, but not a lot. I'm not like a fan of this person. Mm, and I definitely had... <laughs> I mean... Not not a fan, just kind of indifferent. And I kind of felt like you did after the Martha episode. Like, I really enjoyed learning about this person and their life and just everything mm. that they've contributed that I think the world doesn't necessarily know. But I would also like to point out that because this person has been famous for decades, there's a ton of information about them. And this is all our own research and our opinions. You guys know the drill by now. But... I had to pick and choose some stories for sure because this person okay. was very much in the public eye and continues to be talked about at least. So I had to kind of pick my favorites. Ooh. So today, Kate, we will be covering Hollywood and cultural icon, the quintessential child of Tinseltown, the OG Princess Leia, Carrie Fisher. <sighs> oh, wow. <laughs> Yay. Do you know anything about her? Do you know about her life at all? I, from what I recall, she's had uh, quite a, a struggle in her life, especially with addiction and whatnot, but she kind of had a comeback, obviously so sad that she passed away, but big fan. 
Big fan. I'm not a Star Wars person by any I'm means. I'm really glad you just said that because I haven't even seen Star Wars. I get yelled at all the time by various people about this. So if I like misquote Star Wars or say something wrong about Star Wars, don't yell at me. I don't watch it. I don't know the stories. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be interesting, though, to come from a very unbiased opinion from, from someone who has not watched it. Agreed. Myself included. Yeah, because you've seen <laughs> two movies, so... It's four, okay? Oh, yeah, we upped it to four, you're right. Maybe by the end of this, it'll be six. Anywho, Carrie Frances Fisher was born on October 21st in 1956, Burbank, California, to Eddie Fisher and Debbie Reynolds. She said at one point, I was born in California to simple folk. Just kidding, my father was a famous singer and my mom was a movie star. (laughs) Yes! And it's true, her parents were known as America's sweethearts in the 50s. Um, Very high-profile relationship because they were both uber-uber-famous at this time. So when she's two years old in 1958, her brother Todd was born. And shortly thereafter, her dad decided, you know what? I'm over this family and left her mom, Debbie, for Elizabeth Taylor. Oh, super cash. No big deal. Yep. Just... Elizabeth uh Taylor? She of 20 million husbands, (laughs) Elizabeth Taylor. Yeah. Yeah. Just... Racking them up. Yeah. Okay. And Carrie actually compared this situation later in her life um, to what happened with Brad Pitt, Jennifer Aniston, and Angelina Jolie, saying her parents were like Brad and Jennifer, and then Liz Taylor was Angelina Jolie, which pretty good comparison, I would say. So, yeah, needless to say, it kind of rocked their famous family a little bit. It was a pretty big scandal at the time in the 50s in Hollywood uh, because they were so high profile. But... When she was young, she did feel like she was pretty alone because obviously they had a lot of money and her mom was still a working actress and was trying to raise them, but her and her brother just kind of had to stay at home with nannies and didn't really get out much. But she showed an interest in books and poetry from a very young age and also felt like this would be a way to impress her father, but it ultimately never did. He didn't really care about what the family was doing. Oh, yikes. Her family also would call her a bookworm, but not in an endearing way it was more like a haha you're a bookworm you're a nerd type of deal (laughs) (laughs) oh god what are are you gonna say no it's just like that's so sad i know have you noticed like this kind of shift in kids getting made fun of for being smart but now it's like you're cool if you're smart kind of a deal i mean i don't necessarily pay attention to what the children (laughs) today are doing you are probably more in tune with it with your nibblings but i hope that's the case No, I just get really self-conscious when children judge me. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's like, it it has shifted of like, or maybe it's just that that trope of the bully being, you know, teasing the the nerds and and whatnot. But now, now the nerds are, it's revenge of the nerds in 2021. It's about time. Let's hope so Mm -hmm. for society. Anyways, she said that words kept her company and were her first drug, so she really found comfort in reading, writing, poetry, um, which makes sense when you have a family that's not really that close and not really around. So as they grew up, she said her and her brother, quote, watched my parents' bright stars slowly fade. But that said, they still lived a really glamorous life because their parents had made a lot of money, so they lived pretty comfortably. She called her childhood home an embassy and said it looked like an embassy. (laughs) (laughs) very self-aware yep her mom ended up getting married three more times but nothing ever really stuck and 
Since she was away a lot working, Carrie said her brother and her would try to take advantage of time with her. So when she was home, they would both sleep in the room with her and like try to make it so that she didn't know. So Carrie would sleep on the floor by her bed and her brother would sleep over on the other side so where their mom couldn't see if she woke up. And then they'd get up and leave the room before she woke up in the morning. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she knew. She had to know, right? She had to. I hope so. Hmm. But... Who knows? Her dad, Eddie, had a lot of career ups and downs and ended up getting married five different times. He also battled drug and gambling addictions as well as mental illness. And she would go on to have a strained relationship with him throughout his whole life, um, especially because she didn't see him much growing up. So she didn't really have that foundation. And she once said, he defined me more by his absence than by his presence, Mm. which I think says it all. And I felt it was important to mention this at the top because... Obviously, her childhood had a pretty profound impact on her. Yeah. So by 1971, she was 15, and her mom booked the Broadway show Irene, and she ended up pulling Carrie out of high school to join her and sing in the choir of the show. And Carrie was kind of hesitant, but then ended up really liking it and had a really good experience there. And then by 1973, her mom wanted to bring, quote, respectability to the family. So she sent Carrie to the Central School of Speech and Drama in England. And Carrie really didn't want to go at first. She was like, why am I going across the pond to (laughs) learn about this stuff? This seems weird. But she ended up saying it was some of the best times of her life because she just got to be a student. And it was one of the only unexamined parts of her life. Interesting. I didn't know that she was kind of pushed into Hollywood and acting makes sense that she was kind of against it and just wanted to to be with her books and poetry yeah so she spent obviously that time in England and she credits this experience for quote the weird little English accent I had in Star Wars (laughs) what does she have an accent in Star Wars I did watch a few clips and it seems like she floats in and out kind of like Madonna she floats in and out of this little Kind of English, kind of, like, Old South (laughs) accent. It's really funny, now that we know she makes fun of it, too. So, in 1975, she had her film debut. It was the movie Shampoo. Terrible movie name. (laughs) With Goldie Hawn and Warren Beatty. And a couple years later, in 1977, she is cast in Star Wars. Wow, it happened so fast. Yeah, so she kind of just rocketed straight from her debut to Star Wars, which is crazy to think about. Was the sequel to Shampoo called Conditioner? (laughs) Oh my god, you're so proud of yourself right now. You were so excited to say that. I could barely get that out without laughing myself. giggling like a child right now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, okay, I'm pretty sure it is. I think we should make it if it's not. (laughs) Cool. Glad we cleared that up. So, it's 1977, she's cast in the role of Princess Leia, and they ask her to lose weight. They even sent her, the production team, sent her to what she called a fat farm, and she returned at the same size, and was super paranoid throughout filming that she was going to get fired because she returned at the same size. Now, I don't know if you've seen, like, clips or anything of Star Wars, but she's tiny, tiny tiny in this yeah when i say i haven't seen star wars i think i've seen all of the original ones when i was much younger but i didn't it, i didn't follow along my brother was super into star wars so it was just 
yeah. from that. But yeah, she's so tiny. This doesn't surprise me in any way, but doesn't yeah. make it any less awful. Agreed. And we'll talk about Star Wars throughout in her experiences because at various times of her life, she has recalled or offered up more information that people didn't necessarily know at the time. But this is kind of where she started battling body dysmorphia. How can you not? <laughs> Honestly. Wait, but, so by this point, she's what, like 20, maybe? She's 22. Oh, okay. So yeah. Young. So it's not great. 21, 22. This role, though, was largely called her breakout role, because obviously it shot to international success. The film made more than $775 million worldwide. Wow. Which I didn't calculate what that is in today's numbers, but I'm pretty sure it exceeds a billion. Mm-hmm. It exceeded everyone's expectations. No one really knew how it was going to be accepted. And she said that she knew before it was released that it was going to be a hit and that everyone on set, all the actors and actresses and set crew, knew it was going to be a hit, but it was George Lucas that didn't believe it. Not surprising. We could probably do a whole other episode on him. There is a funny anecdote as well about the iconic white dress. And apparently they told her that you can't wear any sort of undergarments under that dress because George Lucas said, quote, you can't wear a bra because there's no underwear in space. (laughs) Yeah, I've I've heard that quote before. Okay. There's also uh, lightsabers aren't a real thing. So do you want to go there? (laughs) So true. (laughs) So true. So on the set, she ended up meeting singer Paul Simon, and they started dating around this time. And she also started hanging out with the cast of SNL a lot and became good friends with John Belushi, started doing a lot of drugs with him, Mm -hmm. um, but really started hanging out with that crowd. Now, as we know, there was a sequel and a million other sequels (laughs) nowadays to Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back, that came out in 1980. And allegedly on the set, she started doing cocaine off of the ice planet on set. Oh. Yep. And (laughs) said, I didn't even like cocaine that much. It was just a case of getting on whatever train I needed to to get high. Yeah. And this often is cited as kind of her, I don't want to use the term gateway drug because that's so like (laughs) drug abuse resistance education coming out, but it really was. And it kind of started her journey into drugs so she started doing more opiates more cocaine hallucinogens and everything after this prior to that point she had really only smoked weed with her mom and she was 13 when she started doing that which is interesting Hmm. but then really started doing cocaine on the set of empire strikes back so in the same year, 1980, she also appears in the movie Blues Brothers. Have you seen this one, Kate? <laughs> I have Classic. seen Blues Classic. Brothers, of course. I, I forgot that she was in it. It's been Me too. ages. So on set, her good friend John Belushi, as you recall, they had been hanging out over the past several years. He really started to see signs that she was developing a drug problem and pulled her aside to kind of warn her. And obviously... Very sad knowing what we know about John Belushi and how he passed away. But it's like he saw himself in her, I think, and acknowledged it. And obviously it didn't really stop her at this point. She had also been casually seeing Dan Aykroyd because her relationship with Paul Simon at this point was just all over the place. But the relationship got serious when he saved her from choking on a Brussels sprout on the set of Blues Brothers. That's hot. (laughs) So that's not Wait, did, like he did the he did the Heimlich or something? How do you... Yeah, he saved no her from way. choking. 
And it's kind of, I mean, the backstory is he had been encouraging her to eat because she was real thin at that point. And so he was like, here, you know, eat something, like trying to save her, kind of. So I think she realized that once he saved her from actually dying on a Brussels sprout. So, yeah, they got really close after that. He ended up proposing on set. And then she broke off the engagement to get back together with Paul Simon. So all over the place with men. Any of this. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. PSA, Brussels sprouts can be choked on. So I've had to give the Heimlich before to someone and save their life. Have you really? Hashtag fun facts. Yeah, it was gnarly. Like It it happened so fast. And it was just like, I had been a lifeguard when I was younger. So I'd done all that training. And when it happened, it was like, whoop, turn you around. And I'm not going to say who, but someone was choking on a meatball and it popped right out. And then the dog ate it. That's so (laughs) scary. That's so scary, though. I mean, people are so helpless. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Well, tip, if you're alone and you're choking, try to run into like a corner of something with your stomach to, yeah. I don't know how we got so off the rails. Sorry. It's fine. It's a, I mean, it was a pretty monumental moment for her relationship with Dan Aykroyd. Yeah. It's fine. I feel like we've talked a lot about Dan Aykroyd in this podcast, too. Just have we? De facto. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. It's kind of like six degrees of separation from Dan Aykroyd at this point. (laughs) Six degrees of Dan Aykroyd. Yep. So the same year, she returned to Broadway to appear in Censored Scenes from King Kong, which I know nothing about and didn't look into, but it sounds really interesting based on the title. It's called Censored Scenes of of King Kong? Yes, that is the title of the play. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no idea. We'll have to Google that one later. I don't know if you should. I don't know if we should either. Anyways, also because of the first two Star Wars being out and her being in Blues Brothers and being on Broadway, she was really, really famous, obviously, at this point. And people called her one of the most relatable stars of the moment around this time because she was just open and honest and kind of a refreshing take on what used to be just prim and proper Hollywood and all that good stuff. So people really liked her because of that. Now, by 1983, Return of the Jedi hits theaters. She goes on set for that, films it. To promote the film, she wore an iconic metal bikini for the cover of Rolling Stone, which, if you haven't seen it, please Google it as you're listening to this podcast, because that whole shot is something else. Oh. There are uh, characters from Star Wars in it, and it's just, it's interesting. Because that's the one where she's trapped by Jabba, right? Yeah. It's really, it's something. And she does address this later on and said that people forever held her to that body standard because of this one photo shoot. And that kind of messed her up a little bit, knowing that she would never look like that again because she was 24 at the time. Like, (laughs) how are you going to look like that again? So she also said she doesn't resent being thought of as Princess Leia. I think we've seen a lot of um, people that we've covered in the past, they get really sick of being pigeonholed or they're paranoid about it. And she didn't hate being thought of as Princess Leia. Obviously, there's a lot of weird stuff around, like, what people would say to her and, you know, things like that. But she once said, I like Princess Leia. I like how she was feisty. I like how she killed Jabba the Hutt. That's my favorite thing she did. Whoa, spoiler (laughs) alert, Jess. Jeez. (laughs) Okay, if you haven't seen the original Star Wars movies by now, I don't know what to tell you. I think the statute of limitations has hit on that. (laughs) Not a bad role to feel pigeonholed in, because she is a badass. Yeah. And I like that she recognized that she was feisty, and that's why she liked her. I think that's a really cool thing to be able to relate to, is playing a character. Mm -hmm. 
She also appears in another Broadway play at this time called Agnes of God, another very strange name, no idea what it means. She also decides to marry Paul Simon this year. So as we know, I kind of hit on it, but they were very up and down. They did not stay married for very long, just around a year. And something that people don't really know is during this marriage, she had an ectopic pregnancy, which are very, very Um. dangerous. And he wasn't really around at all during that, which really hurt her feelings. And she didn't feel supported. It was described as he was very cold and aloof and wasn't really present for her at this time. And she ended up losing the baby and was extremely ill after she had the surgery. And people say that this is ultimately the reason that their marriage ended because she kind of never forgave him for not being there for her. That's so sad. I mean, that's already fair. such a traumatic experience, but to not have your, your partner there to support you is, oh man. And it sounded like she didn't have a great family life to draw from, so she doesn't really totally. know. Oh man. Yeah. And even though their marriage ended, they ended up getting back together and dating again. So it's all over the place. Ultimately, they were on and off for a span of 12 years, wow. um, obviously non-consecutively. And he did write several songs about her. You can call me Al. <laughs> yep, that's it. <laughs> me and Julio down in schoolyard. <laughs> She's Julio. So romantic. Just kidding. But she did say one time, if you can get Paul to write a song about you, do it. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> so it's on, my, it's on my bucket list. <laughs> right? So the song Heart and Bones is about their romance. And then also probably the most notable one is She Moves On. Aww. And there's a line in there for the female vocals that says, you've underestimated my power, which many people speculate is a Darth Vader reference. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it means with Darth Vader, but... Probably makes sense. Easter egg. Fun. (laughs) Yep. She also later said, in reference to her relationship with Paul, I'm not good at relationships. I'm not cooperative enough. I couldn't give him the peace that he needed. Also, it's interesting when you're with another celebrity. The issue of celebrity becomes neutralized, and you can get onto your bigger problems. We both had very interesting fights. It's all a shame, because he and I were very good together in the ways that we were good. But like I said, I don't supply someone with a really peaceful home. Aww. I know. It's not your fault. Right? And that's kind of, we'll see that theme in all of her relationships. She kind of puts the blame on herself. Which, it's not your fault, Carrie. It wasn't your fault. It wasn't your fault. Now, it's no surprise around this time that she was really, really struggling with alcohol, drugs, and depression. I mean, take into consideration all her life events. Over the past couple of years, she breaks off an engagement, she loses a baby, and she gets divorced. And it's just, it's a lot. So in 1985, she suffers from an accidental overdose and enters rehab for the first time. She has looked back on this experience and said in an interview with Larry King, RIP by the way, I didn't like illegal drugs. I liked legal drugs, so I liked medicine. I liked the philosophy of it. You're going to feel better if you take two or eight of these, and I always wanted to feel better. So it really does seem like her drug addictions just came out of wanting to feel better, and she genuinely thought these things would make her feel normal or whatever the case was. Around this time, she also called herself Joan of Narc, patron saint of addicts. Oh, man. It's so sad, but also her sense of humor about everything. That's something we all cherish about hers. Yes. I mean, she was so open about things and was able to poke fun at herself. But, oh, that really breaks my heart. I know. And I think 
through it all, I mean, obviously if you're in rehab, it's probably really easy to look around and try to blame someone, but she has never once blamed her family or the fact that she grew up in a broken family home or the pressure of being a celebrity for her issues. She said, it's always been my responsibility. If it was Hollywood to blame, then we'd all be dope addicts. Hmm. Fair. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And like you mentioned, Kate, she didn't really have a great support system at the time. Her relationship with her mother was quite strained, and a lot of people speculate, and in fact, they've both kind of alluded to this, that it was because they felt competition with one another in the realm of fame. Because her mom was still trying to be famous at this time, and obviously she was in the limelight a lot. So just kind of a weird power struggle dynamic between the two of them, and they just weren't really close. Especially when you mentioned that Debbie Reynolds had kind of pushed Carrie into acting. It was almost like those stage moms trying to live vicariously through their children, but then there's a flip at some point, or if your child does find success, there is probably some jealousy and competition. Yeah, and let us not forget, I mean, she said her and her brother watched her parents' stars slowly fade. So if her mom's desperate to still stay in the spotlight, I can see where that would cause some competition in probably an unhealthy way. Especially after you've just uh, appeared in the three original Star Wars movies and you're on top of the world. Yeah. That's crazy. No kidding. So not great for her. But this year she was diagnosed with bipolar, which she kept quiet at first. We'll touch more on that throughout this episode. So once she got out of rehab, I just wanted to share this story because I think it sums up her wit and her sass in such a good way. She gets out of rehab and she's set up to go to dinner with two senators. So Senator Chris Dodd and Senator Ted Kennedy. And she describes it as like not really knowing why. And we don't really know how this dinner got set up. But she didn't know anything about Chris, and Chris just assumed she was, quote, the cute little actress who had played Princess Leia. Mm -mm. So they're eating dinner, and Senator Ted Kennedy just randomly, out of nowhere, goes, So, do you think you'll be having sex with Chris at the end of your date? Excuse me? And Chris was smiling, and his face was all flushed, like, not necessarily embarrassed, but, like, kind of playing along. And (laughs) Carrie says, God bless... Funnily enough, I won't be having sex with Chris tonight. No, that probably won't happen. Thanks for asking, though. <laughs> Hold up. Was she just set up as like an escort for these senators? Or what? I really, there's not a lot of information. I just thought her response was so It funny. sounds like it. What? Yeah. No, I don't think that's happening. Goodbye. Thanks for asking, though. <laughs> I'm going to say that to people What in the now. hell? Oh, my so gosh. weird. So weird. So we go forward a little bit to 1987, and this is when she gets back to her roots. She published her first novel, Postcards from the Edge, and it went on to become a New York Times bestseller. It was a semi-autobiographical, that's such a long word. Oh, you killed it. Thank you. (laughs) Tale of a show business mother and daughter. So note semi-autobiographical. So lots of truth injected in here. We don't really know what's true, what's not, other than what she's told us later. But she did say in an interview with her mom, if anything, my mother taught me how to thrive. That's my word for it. She would go through these amazingly difficult things, and the message was clear. Doing the impossible is possible. It's just not fun. Sir thrive. I'm going to use that now. Uh, I love that. Yeah, I'm getting that <laughs> tattooed on my forehead now. Have we all not been sir thriving in the past year? It's so true. Oh, I love I know. that. 
such a great thing. But yeah, I think it's clear here. I mean, she really did admire her mom in a lot of ways around this time. So I don't think the whole book, I haven't read it, but I don't think it's a slam against Debbie. It's just honest. Honest, yeah. What they're looking like. So by the late 80s, though, she kind of bounced back after her rehab stint. I think the book probably gave her just a new look on Hollywood and what she wanted to do. So she appears in a slew of successful supporting roles, which turned around some of the flops she had earlier that I didn't even bother to mention because they're not worth it. But she appeared in When Harry Met Sally, mm-hmm. Woody Allen's Hannah and Her Sisters, a movie called Soap Dish. So if you recall, we have shampoo and soap dish now. <laughs> Squeaky clean. Very clean. Another movie, The Burbs, some TV appearances, etc. So she's back in the public eye. Now, in 1990, the book was adapted into a screenplay with Meryl Streep and Shirley MacLaine. She's the one that adapted it. Oh, I didn't know that. And yeah, it was nominated for two Academy Awards and three Golden Globes. And this is really what launched her career as a script doctor. So I want to talk about this for a second, because I think a lot of people, myself included, had no idea that she had this whole second career, right? Nope. So for those listening, a script doctor is generally an uncredited writer who's called in to fix or improve movie scripts. So exactly what it sounds like. So she became, and she was often described around this time, as one of the most sought after script doctors in town. What? And if you think about it, I mean, she's written her whole life. She's really into books and poetry. Uh So now she's using that and using that creativity. And people would often bring her in to improve the female characters. Oh, my gosh. So she was once asked what it takes to fix bad dialogue in a film. And she said, make the women smarter and the love scenes better. (laughs) My jaw is on the floor right now. This is crazy. There's a hilarious subreddit called Men Writing Women. And it's all. Oh my god. Excerpts of just, yeah, men trying to write women. It's just painfully bad. Everything. Oh, I love that you just mentioned that. I'm going to have to go in a rabbit hole later. Yeah, they could have used Carrie Fisher. Wow. It it totally makes sense given her love for reading and literature. Totally. She probably always wanted to do that. Good for her. Yeah. So to Esquire, I mean, I say yeah, but to Esquire at one point she said, It's a good job, but not a job I was looking to get. So she kind of fell into it. Hmm. But just to name some of her alleged works, because again, it's all uncredited, so we don't really know the number that she actually helped. But here's what we think so far. It's Hook, Sister Act, Last Action Hero, Lethal Weapon 3, The Wedding Singer, So I Married an Axe Murderer, Intolerable (gasps) Cruelty, and more. So I Married an Axe Murderer. I love that movie so much. Heads, pants, now. Oh, my gosh. So she, I mean, we know that she's funny, but it sounds like she helps with a lot of comedy films. Hook, too? The Wedding Singer. The Wedding Singer. I love that movie. So, yeah, like I said, we don't really know the full extent, but these are ones that were... 99% 99% sure. Say no more. With. That's amazing. Yeah. So it is around this time, even though she's kind of killing it as script doctor, her screenplay is nominated for awards. She does split for good from Paul Simon at this point, And it's because they were in the Amazon together okay. and they were doing hallucinogens, as, you as do. one does <laughs> in the Amazon. And she had a vision while she was high of being pinned down by Paul's brain. 
And so once she came to, she was like, nope, I'm out. And then they never were back together after that point. Goosebumps. Yep. Ayahuasca. <laughs> Ayahuasca. You have to whisper it when you say it. Yeah. Ayahuasca. Ayahuasca. <laughs> and with that, let's take a quick break. Hey, Jess, how does a cucumber become a pickle? I don't know, Kate. How does it? It goes through a jarring experience. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> okay, that joke is the worst, but you know what's not the worst? The world's leading flat rate creative services platform, aka Design Pickle. That's right. With a flat monthly fee, unlimited requests, and unlimited revisions, Adobe source files, we could go on and on. Design Pickle is an award-winning graphic design and creative services company. And you know what? Our listeners can get $100 off their first month of any Design Pickle plan by using the promo code WORST, all caps, at checkout. The promo code really should be BEST because that's a sweet deal. True that. That's a better joke. So, a week after she splits from Paul Simon, she starts dating talent agent Brian Lord. <laughs> just a week after. Oh, Lord. It's fine. After 12 years, we're just going to wait a week and then jump right in. <laughs> Always seems like a good idea. So they're together, and in 1992, she has her daughter, Billy, which I think is the cutest name for a girl. Oh, my gosh. Soup's cute. And in 1993, she writes another best-selling novel called Delusions of Grandma. <laughs> Is this fiction or nonfiction? Loosely based on her life. Okay. It also, in the story, it touches briefly on her very famous parties, which I did not know about. Oh. But legend has it, she threw some of the most incredible parties that people would clamor to go to. Like, everyone wanted to go to a Carrie Fisher party. So I probably could have done an entire tangent on this, but just to talk about it briefly, lots of stories and lore around these Someone who worked with her on this specific book said, Honestly, I came home from the first one and started to make a list of who is there and realized it would be much easier to make a list of who wasn't there in terms of celebrities. There was a strict guest list and celebrities there actually got quietly excited over the fellow celebrities. That's how high profile the people in attendance were. Uh So people like Elizabeth Taylor, Francis Ford Coppola, Tom Hanks, George Lucas, Meryl Streep, Barbara Streisand, the list goes on and on and on. But very high profile people would attend these things. And the same person who wrote this book with her, helped her write this, said, It amused the hell out of me to see these people who didn't weigh more than one ounce, who tortured restaurants all year long for healthy locale food. And there they were, bellied up, eating like they'd never had food before. I don't know why my brain went here, but I'm thinking of like the gods, the Greek gods just feasting and right? I don't even know. I just, I pictured the same thing kind of. I pictured like the full tables that you see in old paintings. Yeah. <laughs> what? Cause those That's are, a good those, description from that person. Those names that you just dropped, I mean, it's like to have that much star power in one room is insane. Yeah. Pretty crazy. And she threw these throughout her whole life. It wasn't just around this time. Like, she always wanted people together. So I just thought that was a fun thing about her. Now, in 1994, her and Brian are still together, but they decide to call it a quits. And Brian, I don't know if you know this, but later was in a relationship with a man who he is now married to. Hmm. But the two remained close and co-parent Billy. And Carrie joked about making him gay with her addiction to codeine. (laughs) Oh. 
<laughs> and she said, what I do don't think bet? that's how it works, but <laughs> okay, Carrie. She said, when we met, he had hair. I make them bald, I turn them gay. <laughs> that's power. <laughs> right? She's like a witch. That just made me laugh. <laughs> but unfortunately, it took a toll on her mental health. So in 1995, she had a stay in a mental hospital and was just feeling very defeated about everything going on. And as you recall, she's bipolar, so yeah. it makes sense. Again, this is the, I don't know, we're what, like 20 for 20 with uh, creatives that we cover who have ended up in the mental hospital. <laughs> so Yeah, it's no joke. It's really... It's so sad when you really look at it. That's the only thing I have to say. Mm -hmm. So she's out of the public eye for a few years, but in 1997, she's feeling better. She returns to the screen after a decade away, but just in pretty small roles. So she was in Austin Powers, and honestly, I don't even remember who she was in Austin Powers, uh, but roles like that. Mm -hmm. By 2000, she decides that enough is enough. I'm going to make my bipolar diagnosis public because people really didn't know what was going on with her at the time. Mm -hmm. So she made the official announcement that she was battling mental illness with Diane Sawyer. And she really, I did not know this either, she really set the stage for other celebrities to be able to do this. No one had really publicly spoken on the subject before. So Catherine Zeta-Jones came out after the fact with her story. That's right. She really paved the way for people to feel comfortable doing so. Now, it's around this time, because people found out that she was bipolar and she talked about it, they evidently used her photo in the Abnormal Psychology textbook, but it's a photo of Princess Leia. Oh, come on. <laughs> Are you kidding me? <laughs> Princess Leia is not bipolar. <laughs> right? That's what she jokes about. She's like, okay, she's bipolar. I'm not. <laughs> so That's weird. the best photo they could get? Come exactly. on. So I think because she felt empowered by, you know, seeing other people then come out with their own stories and whatnot, this really kicked off her advocacy around mental health. And this is something that throughout the rest of her life she would advocate for to destigmatize mental health, talk about mental illness openly, encourage people to get help, etc. She said, one of the things that baffles me, and there are quite a few, is how there can be so much lingering stigma with regards to mental illness, specifically bipolar. In my opinion, living with manic depression takes a tremendous amount of balls. It does. Preach. So I love that she did all that, but she also around this time stopped doing script doctor work. She said, Probably there are still people who get the job without having to jump through hoops, but there's more hoop jumping now, as maybe there should be, because it's a very lucrative thing to do, but I don't like the hoops, and you wouldn't either as a writer. Hmm. They say, well, what would you do if you got this job? So basically, you're giving them your ideas, you're giving them your writing for free, and then generally, they go, nah, we found someone else, mm. and they probably always wanted that someone else. So I don't want to play. And they still have tried to engage me. They still are like, you essentially have the job. You just have to come in and talk to them. And you don't. It's bullshit. I don't like being treated like that. And no one does. Wow. So I thought that was pretty powerful. And I think it is. also she's taking a stance on this because she's had successful novels now and is getting her word out there without having to be involved in these scripts. So she's like, you know what? I don't need to do this anymore. 
it's lucrative, whatever. I don't need the money and I don't want to jump through your hoops. Yeah, Bye. well, I mean, it sounds like the industry is just taking advantage of people, not wanting to pay them, just let's squeeze your ideas out of you and then carry on. I'm sure she was probably like blacklisted after she said or was outspoken about it because they're like, don't give away our secrets. It immediately made me think of, I don't know if you've ever had to do this for a job, but have you ever gone through an interview process and they ask you to give ideas on what your vision is for something and then they end up not hiring you uh-huh. and taking your ideas. That's what it is. It's totally. just in corporate world instead of Hollywood. Yeah, I don't do so that to can, people. Right? I can relate and that sucks and I'm happy that she decided to move on. So in 2002, she got her own interview show called Conversations from the Edge with Carrie Fisher. Hmm. I don't know much about it. There wasn't that much information out there, but I'm guessing it was pretty funny knowing what we know about her. Yeah. By 2004, she releases another best-selling book based on her life experiences called The Best Awful There Is. <laughs> this one focused more on mental illness and tried to paint it both in like a hard truth light, but also a comedic way. So she really tried to balance the two out to further destigmatize mental illness, specifically bipolar, as we know. And later in 2004, she was awarded the Women of Vision Award for her impact on the film industry from Washington, D.C. So we're starting to see the awards trickle in. Now, in 2006, she <laughs> she puts on a one-woman show called Wishful Drinking, and it has absolute rave reviews. She's really good at titles, whether it's books Isn't she? or her theater. Every title, I'm like, oh, that's so clever. I love it. Wishful drinking? Like, who thinks of that? I love it. Now, it's a one-woman show. It's her first stage work in decades. And apparently, she used to get terrible stage fright. Hmm. In an interview one time with the New York Times, she said she wanted to return because she finally found her instrument, which was her voice and being herself. So she felt like she didn't really have anything to say, but she was willing to overcome her stage fright because she felt like she wanted to get her message out there. And her biographer said later that it surprised her the most that she was returning to the stage because she would hear the calls that she would have with people in the middle of the night asking them to come over because she couldn't be alone. She never wanted to be alone, which I think resulted in her stage fright. Being on stage by herself just terrified her. And she'd be witty on stage while she was doing a book tour, but in the morning, she'd be throwing up about it. So, like... I feel like we've seen this in some of the other creatives we cover, or at least I've just reading about stage fright, and it seems like it really never goes away if you have it. It's just kind of using that energy and that anxiety you have and, and translating it. But just speaking personally, I get terrified speaking in front of people and going on stage, I can do it, and I think I can do it fairly well. But that you it, can you, confirmed. Uh, meh. But it like it, it. You never feel fully comfortable with it. It's still scary, no matter what. Just hearing that someone who's had mass success still gets it and kind of push through her fear yeah. in an extreme way. Well, I'm so afraid of being on stage that I'm going to do this performance by myself without having other actors on stage with me. That's that's amazing. Right? It's like the most extreme you can go. Uh-huh. You don't have anyone else to save you and you hate being alone. So wow. putting yourself out there. And I was thinking a lot about this because it's so mind blowing to me that people can be comfortable 
on camera and doing weird things for movies and being on the set. But then when it comes to being in front of a live audience, it really is a totally different vibe, mm-hmm. completely different ball game. So in a way, I really do understand it. And I empathize with that feeling because it yeah. sucks. <laughs> you just feel like you're being judged the whole time. So because this was so successful, it got rave reviews. People loved it. It was talked about for a really long time after, and it was actually turned into a book. So she wrote a book based on this one-woman show. Obviously, it was also a bestseller because she writes nothing that isn't a bestseller at this uh-huh. point. And in 2010, HBO released an actual performance that they recorded of it as a documentary. Now, I have to say, I watched this before. I watched it yesterday to prepare for this episode, and it is fantastic. Oh, okay. I got a lot of information from it, but also her self-deprecation and the way she handles herself, it is hysterical. So if you like this episode, please go watch it and support her because, wow, just wow. So this documentary was nominated for both an Emmy and a Grammy, a Grammy being for the spoken word component, which is interesting. And in this year, her father ended up passing away. They ended up on pretty decent terms. You know, it was always complicated, but Carrie really tried to make the best of it towards the end of his life. And he had a bucket wish, not a bucket list, to have one more adventure with a prostitute. Wait, what? (laughs) Yep. Have a, if that gives a, you any a, indication. A what kind of adventure? One last adventure oh, with a prostitute. Okay. <laughs> and, I mean, he's old at this point, and Carrie really actually tried to fulfill it for him. She joked that she looked on Craigslist for <laughs> prostitutes and all this stuff, but ultimately it was never fulfilled, unfortunately, for Eddie so, Fisher. So sad. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Kate's so disgusted. Well, right I now. mean, like, he abandoned his family and just... Yeah. Fu- off and but my one my last dying wish to have an adventure hey daughter can you fulfill this for me (laughs) what in the hell i know i mean it's sad because he died sorry okay no but she tells some pretty funny stories about him in the documentary so you'll enjoy that piece of it as we recall i mean he battled mental illness addiction as well Mm -hmm. so i think as he got older she probably saw why he wasn't with the family and like probably understood it a little bit more. So it was okay trying to reconcile with him. Sure. So in 2012, she releases yet another book and another great title. It's called Shockaholic. Oh, come on. I I didn't know she was such an accomplished writer. Like this all makes total sense. Doesn't it? That's her passion. Wow. Yep. So in this book, she talks a lot about mental illness as well And she touched on shock therapy, which is probably where we get the name from, and said it worked wonders for her depression. She really wanted to clear up that it's not what it looks like in the movies or Mm -hmm. TV. It's so over the top when you see it. And she references One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. (gasps) She's like, that's not accurate. That's not what it's like. And she said it helped her immensely. She said it was a mute button for her depressive thoughts. And she said the only thing that it did have a negative impact on was her short-term memory, but she didn't care because it made her feel better. And that's true. I mean, if it works for you, who cares? Who cares if you can't remember what you ate for lunch? So 
In this book, she also talked about her body image and said she wished she didn't care so much about how she looks, but she does. So this is something that we're still seeing decades later after Star Wars. And you have to wonder, I found myself wondering, did those asshole producers that first sent her to a fat farm, are they the reason that she battled this the rest of her life? Uh, Yeah. I mean, I'm sure it's a ton of different factors, but that is that alone. And that's not, this is just one situation that still happens in Hollywood and has been such a big issue of uh, forcing young women and men to change their appearances for roles and to an unhealthy extent. But my God, to send someone away to to a, just the term fat farm is so gross. Yeah, I it's cannot. horrible. <laughs> then you add horrible. on, like, I mean, b- bipolar and everything. Like, she's, uh, I think she would have struggled it already, too. Just lots I of things agree. going against her for that. It's so sad. They call them triggers or whatever uh-huh. to really set certain things off. And in this case, I feel like she probably always had it in her. But the trigger was for her body dysmorphia was getting sent to fat oh, farm. Yeah. And think about like you said, the picture of Princess Leia is in the Abnormal Psych book. It, that's the point of reference that people are going to be looking at even later yep. in your life. And you're like, I don't really look like that. That's not real. <laughs> And she always ended up joking about it, like I said. I mean, she talked about it in books and interviews and everything that she appeared on, she would address it because I think people really did. And we see this with a lot of people we cover. People hold them to unrealistic standards for their whole careers. And like, at the end of the day, these people are human. They're going to make mistakes. They're going to gain weight. They're not going to be 24 forever. You know what's so sad to me, too, is she's clearly such a talented writer across, I mean, novels and films and everything. And she was kind of forced into limelight to be on camera and whatnot. I wonder how her life would have been different if she just was able to kind of stick to writing where you're not in totally. the limelight. People aren't as focused on your visual appearance or physical appearance. And I don't think she ever regretted being on camera is how she talks about it. But I do think she recognizes that it did have a different impact on her than it would have been if she just stuck to writing. Mm-hmm. So she also said about this book, over the years, writing about having bipolar did help me to be able to talk about my illness in the abstract to make light of it. That's my way of surviving, to abstract it into something that's funny and not dangerous. I just thought that summed her up in a really good way in her sense of humor. So in 2015, she returns to Star Wars with J.J. Abrams as the director And this broke a wide array of box office records, as you probably remember. People were so excited to see it back in action. Now, in 2016, I feel like usually in our episodes, we kind of get through all the crazy stuff in the middle, and then we kind of wind it down at the end. I left one kind of crazy story for the end, so here we go. Oh, boy. She writes her memoir called The Princess Diarist. Oh, come on. Another great title. I know. Love it's it. not okay. <laughs> so this is based on the diaries she wrote while filming the original Star Wars movies in Whoa. the 70s. She had actually forgotten that she wrote these diaries, and she was renovating her bedroom to make it bigger. She found boxes beneath her floorboards, and it contained a bunch of stuff. But her writing was in there, and these journals, diaries, whatever you want to call them, were also in there. And she immediately remembered when she saw them, oh, I documented all of this. So she said she was so shocked at how insecure she was. And this is kind of a theme throughout the memoir. 
She also recalled heavily being one of the only females on set, including the crew members, and said, I think I sort of felt isolated. I didn't really have anyone. I didn't confide in men. Well, I didn't confide in anyone then. And the crew would kind of not poke fun at her, but they would call her our little princess no. and things like that, which made me feel really icky. Mm. Um, yeah. Not great. So, you know, I'm kind of setting the stage here because when the book actually dropped, it was a huge controversy because she revealed the details of an affair that she had with Harrison Ford, <gasps> which had been kept secret for nearly 40 years. <laughs> Wow. Yep. So when it. they were filming, you know, she was super young. She was 21 when the movie came out. At the time of the actual affair, she was 19 and he was 33 with a wife and two children. Whoopsies. Whoopsie-daisy. Um, yeah, not great. A lot of people also, I think the expectations were that they were going to get some behind-the-scenes info about the making of Star Wars <laughs> and what it was like to work on the films. But it was just all her personal stuff, airing out her dirty laundry. Dude, I want to read this. Getting it out in the open. And it really did focus more on her insecurities as a teenage actress and her painful feelings about the relationship with Harrison Ford and moments that she was taken advantage of as a young woman in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. So, story goes that one night, there's a party, I think it was to celebrate George Lucas's birthday, she got drunk and kind of had a self-aware moment where she realized she shouldn't be drinking in this kind of environment, but she kept drinking to fit in with everyone, the cast, crew, etc. Uh -huh. Several men tried to remove her from the party and kind of, like, engulfed her. And Harrison Ford jumped in to try to save her and, like, made comments to the guys, like, how dare you, you know, you should be better than this, and then proceeded to make out with her just after scolding the others for their intentions. And that's how the affair started. I'm horrified right now. Yeah. It actually, it continued for about three months. And I just want to read a quick excerpt from her journal because it's very powerful. She said, we have no feeling for one another. We lie buried together during the night and haunt each other by day, acting out something that we don't feel and seeing through something that doesn't deserve any focus. I have never done anything quite like this. I sit patiently awaiting the consequences. I talk, walk, eat, sleep, patiently awaiting the consequences. How can a thing that doesn't seem to be happening come to an end? George says that if you look at the person that someone chooses to have a relationship with, you'll see what they think of themselves. So Harrison is what I think of myself. It's hardly a relationship, but nevertheless, he is a choice. I examined all the options and chose the most likely to leave no emotional investments. Never love for me, only obsession. Someone has to stand still for you to love them. My choices are always on the run. I, uh, uh, mic drop. Uh, yep. My heart is broken <laughs> right now because I think about, I this is so not related to our podcast anyway, but... There is something with like young women and when they're uh, sought after by much older men, you might think like, oh, he really likes me. I'm so mature, but it's such a manipulation. And especially yep. hearing that I was at a party when he came in as her white knight and she's drunk and you take advantage of her. I just, yep. Ooh, I need a moment. It's important to note, too, I mean, there's so much information now, and she's spoken publicly on it since then. I could probably, again, have done an entire sidebar on this, maybe an entire episode on this, 
but I just wanted to stick to the basic facts that we know and that she said from her own mouth. And she did say that she sent the manuscript of the book to Harrison Ford and said that he could take anything out that wasn't comfortable for him. Like, you've gone through all of that and you're still asking for his permission? Just do it! (laughs) But he ended up never commenting on it. So I think either he realized it was pretty up or didn't want to get in the way of it, didn't want to make a bigger ass of himself. Who knows? Never ended up commenting. The fact that well, I'm not like pop aficionado, but do you remember hearing about this in the news at all? About the relationship? Oh, okay. But I wasn't a Star Wars fan and I'm still not, so I didn't really pay attention to it, yeah. to be honest. I wonder if that was like a PR move, like just don't address it, ignore it. She's probably she's mentally ill, so we're just gonna act like that didn't happen. Yeah, I'm 100% guessing that's what happened. They probably just didn't want to engage because she's so outspoken that she would have told people if he commented on it. So he probably was like, well, better to just let it ride out until the next news cycle. So according to an interview her brother Todd did with Vanity Fair, I guess her mother had no idea that the affair had happened before she wrote the book and really disapproved of her writing about it. And she regretted it after the book was published and told her mother, you were right, I shouldn't have told that story. Now, I disagree (laughs) because I think it's important to tell those stories and like Mm -hmm. speak your truth. And I don't really know why her mother was so upset about it because she's not the one that had an illicit affair with a much older dude. So I don't know, Debbie. Don't know about that one. Debbie. Yeah. So... Around this time that this all happens, good is still going on. Harvard actually awarded her an Outstanding Lifetime Achievement Award in Cultural Humanism Hmm. for her activism around addiction and mental illness. And they said her activism advanced public discourse on these issues with creativity and empathy, which just sums it up in a really nice way, I think. Yeah. In her acceptance speech of the award, Carrie said, I've never been ashamed of my mental illness. It never even occurred to me to be ashamed. Many people thank me for talking about it, and mothers can tell their kids when they're upset with the diagnosis that Princess Leia is bipolar too. I'm going to cry. I can't. I know. uh, With a lot of celebrities who do have that big role, they might want to shy away from it, but she knows, like, no, people look up to Princess Leia, so I'm going to use it for good. I'm going to use my powers for good. I love it. What a woman. Outside of her activism for these specific issues, she also was fighting the Me Too movement before it was even a thing, before it was called Me Too. So quick story, she found out that her friend Heather Ross, an actress, was told by an unnamed producer that she'd never make another movie in Hollywood after refusing his advances. Tale as old as time, unfortunately. So she sent the, she, Carrie, sent the producer a Tiffany gift-wrapped box containing a cow's tongue. (gasps) And it was accompanied by a note that said, If you ever touch my darling Heather or any other woman again, the next delivery will be something of yours in a much smaller box. (laughs) Queen! (laughs) She is Queen Leia now. (laughs) What? Yeah, I loved that story. I had to put it in here. (laughs) She is beyond this world. Just... Mm -hmm. Was always too good good for this world, apparently. What? Uh-huh. So, I yeah, amazing. And 
<laughs> I hate that I even have to go into this part. But one one one, one more quick thing. But just even the way that letter is written is so <laughs> beautiful. Like I know it's such a like it's such a threat. By the way, we don't condone violence. Uh, that's not what we're here no. for. But what an eloquent way to right <laughs> to threaten someone. It's all implied. She doesn't outright say it. Oh it's all man, implied. that is I know. straight out of the Godfather. Put it on a t-shirt. <laughs> Just kidding. Don't do that. <laughs> so I really, like I said, I hate that we have to even talk about this, but in December of 2016, she suffered a massive heart attack while on a flight from London to California, was rushed to the hospital. She remained in critical condition and ultimately ended up passing away four days later. May the force be with her was trending all over social mm-hmm. media. And in a family statement on behalf of Billy, they said she was loved by the world and she will be missed profoundly. Our entire family thanks you for your thoughts and prayers. Now, the coroner's report said she had a mixture of drugs and alcohol in her system when she suffered cardiac arrest. But the cause is largely undetermined because there was so much going on. Like she has this massive cardiac incident. She has drugs in her system. She has alcohol. So they never could really determine the specific cause Hmm. of what ultimately made her pass away. Billy said after her mother's death, My mom battled drug addiction and mental illness her entire life. She ultimately died of it. She was purposefully open in all of her work about the social stigmas surrounding these diseases. I know my mom. She'd want her death to encourage people to be open about their struggles. Seek help. Fight for government funding for mental health programs. Shame on those social stigmas. And those are the enemies of progress to solutions and ultimately a cure. I love you, mommy. Which made me, like, so teary-eyed when I read it. Well said. Well said. Now, lightening it up again, because Carrie was such a fun person. Her ashes were buried in an urn shaped like a Prozac pill. (laughs) And I guess she had a giant Prozac pill in her house. And her brother Todd said it was one of her favorite things. So he and Billy decided it was the only appropriate way to bury her. (laughs) They wanted it in the Prozac pill. I just, I love her so much. I just, and it, it breaks my heart thinking about how much she struggled with. It it sounds like it was just ongoing and she made the most of it she could. But it like even hearing all the things that were so funny, there's always that twinge of of pain behind all of it. So true. She's a a real warrior, you know? (laughs) Yep. And in typical Carrie fashion, she pre-wrote her own obituary just for fun at one point and said... I want it reported that I drowned in moonlight, strangled by my own bra. <laughs> I remember that. Oh, <laughs> so great. <laughs> so great. And as you probably know, and as many people probably know, a day after she passed away, her mother and her family were making funeral arrangements. And before anything happened, her mom said, I miss her so much. I just want to be with Carrie. And a few hours later, she suffered a life-ending stroke. Mm. So they had a lot of issues, but ultimately at the end, they were super, super close. Their houses were even next door and they basically shared a driveway. So they really turned it around. Um, They did interviews together towards the end that if you like this story at all, please go read them because they're fantastic. They had such good banter. So it really warmed my heart to know she did kind of reconcile with both her parents after a rough start it's a complicated relationship and but it's family and they love each other it's uh oh wow exactly 
So in 2017, she appears in The Last Jedi. So fun story about this that I didn't know. And again, I keep saying this throughout the whole thing, but I genuinely, if you're interested in these stories, go look up these articles and we can post them too. But there's a really cool oral history in Vanity Fair about how J.J. Abrams and the team worked to reconstruct old shots to get Princess Leia in this movie. And they asked Billy permission to do so, and she was like, absolutely. So they really had to kind of reverse engineer all these cut shots from the 2015 movie, but they felt really strongly about her being in there as Carrie Fisher, not anyone else. In 2018, she was posthumously awarded Disney Legend, which is a big deal, and also a Grammy for her spoken word performance of The Princess Diarist. Over her career, she appeared in about 50 movies, countless TV shows, and wrote eight books. few quotes to sum it up. Throughout her life, she was known as the witty host of hundreds of star-packed soirees, as well as a caring, generous friend and unapologetic truth-teller. When asked what Carrie's greatest achievement was, her biographer said, her unique charisma and ability to be at the center of people's lives. After she died, there was an immediate small memorial at her house, and Richard Dreyfuss said to everyone assembled, without Carrie, we would just be separate people. Vanity Fair also said, while it can be grotesque to watch celebrities publicly lamenting life's hand, Carrie used her wit, talent, and experiences to entertain audiences everywhere from movie screens to Twitter streams. Carrie said... My life wasn't funny. It would just be true. Let's say something happens, and from a certain slant, it's tragic. And then time passes, and you go to the funny slant. And oh. now, that very same thing can no longer do you harm. Wow. Last but not least, I will leave us all with some wisdom that Carrie provided to Rolling Stone when asked what are the important rules to live by. She said, be kind, don't hurt other people. It's all the sort of Christian ethics stuff I thought was bullshit when I was a kid. <laughs> but it turns out, it's not bullshit. Tell the truth, be kind, all that corny stuff. Gosh. Ah. Yeah. So, Kate. <laughs> I hate even asking this question. <laughs> I know. Was Carrie the worst? Oh, uh, the worst. The absolute worst. <laughs> No, that was very moving. And just hearing those quotes alone sounds like she clearly touched so many lives. And I feel like she's a friend. You know what I mean? Just hearing you talk about this, she sounds like someone we would be friends with. And it's it's really heartbreaking to hear all the stuff that she battled with, but also inspiring to hear how she she turned things around and, and made a voice for others. It's so powerful. So powerful. We we talk about her being in Star Wars and how that catapulted her career, but also keep in mind Star Wars was filmed what seventies, yeah, such a different time. Her being alone on set that that was the norm. Her being isolated from everyone. Thank you for sharing that with me and on this podcast. I'm just blown away. Thank you, Carrie Fisher. We love you. Thank you, Carrie. Well said. I can't even add anything. I think the biggest takeaway for me was she was so much more than Princess Leia. Mm-hmm. I think we talked about it in the podcast, but people get pigeonholed. And I think she just kind of 
broke free of that, told her truth, and never apologized for it. And that's something we should all aspire to do. So thank you, Carrie. You are a real inspiration. And I am going to watch your documentary again because I was laughing my ass yeah, off. <laughs> I, too. I, want, I want to read her books. Just I, hearing the, the miscellaneous quotes, she is a brilliant writer. So I can only imagine that her books are just next level. Totally. Wow. That was We will amazing. drop everything mentioned in the show notes for everyone so you can experience Carrie Fisher on your own time. But if you have anything else that you wish we would have covered or you have a Star Wars story or how Carrie Fisher helped you realize something over your life, let us know at podcast.designpickle.com. Give us a follow on at creatives on Instagram and worst creatives on Twitter. And that's it for this week. Yeah, well done. We got a couple of great uh, recommendations for folks who want to cover next or people our, our listeners want us to cover so if you have any yeah. ideas please let us know podcast designpickle.com uh wow well done jess that was beautiful I thanks can't Kate. say it i'm enough. gonna go cry real quick yeah, <laughs> i want to go laugh let's laugh i think that's what carrie Perfect. would want you know that's so true yeah. do what carrie would do wwcd let's do it. new mantra let's do it have a great week everyone we'll see you next week Bye. Thanks for listening to Creatives Are the Worst. If you like what you're hearing, or if you think that we're the worst, please leave us a review on your podcast platform of choice. We'd love to hear from you. You can also contact us directly at podcasts at designpickle.com. And a big thanks to Design Pickle for sponsoring the show. Join us next week as we once again try to answer the question, are creatives the worst? 